Let's open our Bibles tonight and try to go quickly for a few minutes, taking up where we left off this morning. I'd like to start by turning you to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 11. 1 Peter 1.11. 1 Peter 1.11 is our opening text for tonight. This morning, we ended in, in making some considerations about prophetic language. And we want to be wise in the Bible and follow God's own rules that He's given us about how to study the prophets. And I gave you a reference in the Old Testament that said God multiplied visions and by the ministry of His prophets they used similitudes. A similitude is a simile where there's a comparison being made between two things. The prophet doesn't say what it is exactly. He uses word pictures to tell you. I had a dear sister come up to me afterwards and ask, is a similitude the same as a parable? Very good. Because a parable is a word picture where you have to look through the words and look through the picture to find the meaning of what God is giving to us. The reason he used word pictures was to hide the meaning from most people because he only wanted his disciples to know the truth, according to Matthew 13. Anyway, 1 Peter 1.11. Here's another reference. This is speaking of the great salvation of the New Testament era and of the coming, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, where it says in verse 11, Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. What the Old Testament prophets wrote was not always plain because the Holy Spirit signified it to them. Here's another reference showing that God by His prophets used sign language rather than plain language. That's why when the Bible is going to use plain language, do you know that it actually tells you? It says, now the Spirit speaketh expressly. And when when it tells you that the Spirit speaketh expressly, you can count on the fact that what's about to be said in the Word of God, you can know immediately. Where is that expression used? Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith. 1 Timothy chapter 4, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, commanding to abstain from meat and and forbidding to marry. Two doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church specifically laid out in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. That's when the Spirit speaks expressly. But when you open the book of Ezekiel, the book of Jeremiah, the book of Isaiah, you know that it's not all plain because you struggle through those books because the prophets are using similitudes, picture language. When the Bible says that Canaan was going to be a land flowing with milk and honey, what kind of a boat would work the best? A honey boat. That's because honey and milk, there wasn't, you know, the Lord didn't intend a drop of either in His statement. It's an expression about a land that's full of good things. A land flowing with milk and honey. But see, that is how the Bible uses language, and it's used that way throughout. Remember Genesis chapter 3, God spoke to the devil and said, You will bruise his heel, he shall bruise your head. Does that mean that the Lord Jesus Christ should have worn shoes? And I'm not trying to be disrespectful or sacrilegious. A heel bruise is very insignificant to your overall body. A head wound is generally mortal. And that's what you're supposed to get from that kind of language. And the prophets spoke that way all the time. That was their method. And so we want to learn that from the Word of God, not from a book from seminary on how to understand 
prophecy. C.I. Schofield wrote a book called Rightly Dividing the Word of Truth. The only problem is he never learned to divide the truth rightly. He was a dispensationalist, and one of his main rules was that you take every Bible prophecy literal. And you can't do that if the Bible's true, because the Bible tells us that God, through His prophets, used picture language instead of express language. So you don't want to take it literally. You want to look for what the figurative language is saying in many cases. That is why the eunuch riding back in his chariot did not know who was under consideration in Isaiah 53. He said to Philip, is the prophet speaking of himself or of another man? Because it wasn't plain to him. And Philip was able to preach Jesus to him. And when we prayed tonight and asked the Lord to help us rightly divide the word of truth, it's not because we can figure out all the figurative language of the Bible. We can't yet. We're just asking him to give us a few more verses. And when he gives us a few more verses, we're going to pray for a few more verses. And we're going to tell the Lord that we're but a little child. And would he please give us wisdom to help us understand the Bible? Sun, moon, and stars. Last Sunday, from Joel chapter 2, we had a prophecy that the sun would stop shining and the moon would stop shining. The stars would fall from heaven. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, when all the Jews were looking at the Galilean disciples speaking in tongues, said, and were wondering, what in the world is going on? And Peter said, men, these apostles are not drunk seeing it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. The fact that Galileans, who could barely speak their own language well, they couldn't. Because when a Galilean opened his mouth, they would immediately know that he was uneducated. Because they were fishermen. Remember in Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John, as soon as they'd opened their mouths, they knew that they weren't educated men, but these men were speaking other languages fluently that those men had been born in from all over the world. Peter said, this is that. This great change religiously by the power of the Holy Spirit was forecast, prophesied by Joel by saying the sun's going to stop shining, the moon's going to stop shining, the stars are going to fall, there's going to be blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. That's how prophets speak. And see, we're thankful that we have Joel and that we have Acts 2. I'm very thankful because I have an apostle telling me in that particular case, How to apply that prophecy. This is that. Do you all remember that from last Sunday? Sun, moon, and stars. Let's think about it further. What is the older expression for the Middle Ages? The Dark Ages. After the fall of Rome, there was a great period of time, and it's been known as the Dark Ages. Why was it called the Dark Ages? Because there was so much ignorance... And because Europe was being crushed by Huns and others from the East. And it's called the Dark Ages. Surprise, surprise. Do you mean we actually use language like the prophets? Yes. Because it was so dark in Europe. Did it mean the sun wasn't shining? Had the amount of light actually declined in Europe from the Roman Empire? No. But had had political stability declined? Had research declined? Yes. Europe was a mess. It's called the Dark Ages. I used Isaiah 13 this morning. And if you fear God and you love the words of God, you will go back and check out Isaiah 13 again and read through it and see how it sounds like the second coming of Christ. 
It calls the day of the Lord twice. He's going to root all of the sinners out of the world, all of the wicked. The sun's going to stop shining, moon, stars are going to fall, the constellations won't exist. He says all of that. And the first verse and the 17th verse both tell us what it's all about. The burden of Babylon. I'm going to crush Babylon, and I'm going to use the Medes and the Persians to do it. And that event is 2,500 years old. But a prophet, when you are talking about the most powerful empire the world had seen, and that was the Babylonian Empire, and to say that it's going to be overthrown and changed, and someone's going to take over the city of Babylon, you would use earth-shattering language like the prophet used. And that's how prophets worked. And I gave you that from Isaiah 13. It's how we compare Scripture with Scripture to understand how prophets speak. Let me give you another one on sun, moon, and stars. Ezekiel 32. Ezekiel 32. Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are full of this kind of language for a good reason. Because those three prophets and several of the minor prophets were describing the destruction of nations and cities on a regular basis. First of all, they were describing the destruction of Israel by the Assyrians, then the destruction of Judah by the Babylonians, then the destruction of the Babylonians by the Medes, then the destruction of the Egyptians by the Babylonians. All that's in Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and several of the minor prophets. So you have a lot of this sun, moon, and stars type of language. Ezekiel 32, in which we have God prophesying the destruction of Egypt. Who's he going to use to destroy Egypt? Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. I want to read two verses to you, verses 7 and 8. And when I shall put thee out, that's Pharaoh. You can read the first six verses and know that it's talking about Pharaoh. See verse 2? Verse, but come back to verse 7. And when I shall put thee out, I will cover the heaven and make the stars thereof dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give her light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee and set darkness upon thy land, saith the Lord God. Two verses out of a whole chapter. Now, can we take that chapter and say that in history at some point in time, the sun stopped shining in Egypt. The moon stopped shining in Egypt. There was no light in the land except their light. Well, they didn't have light bulbs, so it was just candle power. No, it's just the prophetic language of a prophet saying... I'm going to turn things upside down in Egypt and put you back into the Dark Ages. Which he did. That's sun, moon, and stars. I have about 15 examples more in my outline, but we don't have time for that tonight because the Bible's filled with it. Let's move to another one. How about clouds? Come to Psalm 18. Every time you read the word cloud in the Bible, should you assume that white puffy cotton candy in the sky? Psalm 18. Sometimes you should. You know, when it talks about rain coming out of clouds, I would tend to think that we probably had a real cloud involved when rain comes out of that cloud. Psalm 18. David's great psalm that he wrote, and it's in the Bible twice. It's in 2 Samuel 22, and it's here in Psalm 18. Do you like Psalm 18? Psalm 18, David wrote, after God delivered him from all his enemies... And he starts off by telling about how the Lord is his confidence, his fortress, his high tower. And he's going to call upon the name of the Lord. And he he explains in verse 6 that he was in great distress and he called upon the name of the Lord. Now here's the response he got. Verse 7. Then the earth shook and trembled. 
the foundations also of the hills moved and were shaken because he was wroth. There went up a smoke out of his nostrils and fire out of his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down and darkness was under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and did fly. Yea, he did fly upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his secret place. His pavilion round about him were dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. At the brightness that was before him, his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. And we could keep on reading. That is David as a prophet of God. And he is to, we're told in the Bible he's a prophet. That's how he described God coming to his rescue to deliver him from his enemies. God came down riding on a cherub with dark clouds all around him. The earth shook and the foundations of the hills were moved. Did any of those things happen literally? What kind of a saddle was he using on the cherub? And I do not speak irreverently. I want you to think this is the grand language of a prophet telling us, God came to my rescue. And when God came to my rescue, He delivered me from all my enemies. Because that's the purpose of the whole psalm. We're not supposed to start thinking about solar eclipses, lunar eclipses, and hills moving and shaking, and the earth quivering. None of that happened. It's just David describing, God came to me. God came and did something big in my life. I thought it was over for me. But God came. It was as if the earth shook. Remember this morning? I have some earth-shattering news for you. We don't mean a thing about shattering the earth. All we mean is something big happened. And David is saying, I was in deep distress and God did something big for me. This is an example of clouds. My favorite, Isaiah 19. Isaiah 19. God coming down to earth on clouds. Isaiah 19. For those of you that are wise, you're thinking to yourself, He's setting me up. I know what He's doing. He's setting me up. No, we're learning how to study the Bible the Bible way. Instead of going by the sound of words and the sight of words. We want to go by the sense of words. We want to understand when a prophet is speaking and when the language is figurative. And we want to understand when it's literal. Isaiah 19. Now, the first four words tell you what the chapter is about, doesn't it? What are the first four words? The burden of Egypt. This is God's judgment upon Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians. Look at what he says. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt. And the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Egypt shall melt in the midst of it. And you can go on and read the rest of the chapter all about the five cities of the land of Egypt, verse 18 and so forth, where God describes in detail that Nebuchadnezzar were whipped up on the Egyptians because the Egyptians had been a thorn in the side of his people Israel. But notice that first verse. That first verse is precious. We are told in the Word of God to compare spiritual things with spiritual. So when we find language using clouds and the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, we ought not to leap to the second coming, because you cannot prove the second coming from those words. Those words are inadequate by themselves to prove that that's a second coming verse, because God's been coming in the clouds of heaven for thousands of years. 
whenever he comes and crushes his enemies and delivers his people. Behold, the Lord rideth upon a swift cloud and shall come into Egypt, and the idols of Egypt shall be moved at his presence. Did his presence change places? Did he come on a swift cloud? How fast was it? How fast did the cloud move? Did he come to Egypt? How did he come to Egypt? God's the invisible, infinite spirit that fills heaven and earth. He came figuratively to Egypt in judgment upon a cloud which always accompanies his judgment according to many other prophecies of the Old Testament and his presence of judgment was in the land of Egypt and the rest of the chapter goes on to describe what he was going to do to the Egyptians. Look at the language. We do not jump to conclusions about a second coming from Isaiah 19.1. We do not jump to a conclusion about a literal cloud. We do not jump to a conclusion about a literal God appearing in presence. It says presence in Egypt. He came in judgment. Was he there really? Oh yeah, he was there really. He was really there in judgment. And it was painful for Pharaoh. And brethren, this is how we have to study the Bible. Two choices. Every time we see a cloud, it's a literal cloud. We're a futurist. We do not understand the Bible. Every time we see a cloud, it's a figurative cloud, and it never is to be taken literal. We're a preterist. I am sorry for using words that some of you may not even know what they mean. A futurist is someone who takes the prophecies of the Bible and jams them all out into the future. Everything's over there. There's a tribulation coming. There's an antichrist coming. There's enemies coming. There's two, three, four comings of Jesus Christ. There's a battle of Armageddon and a whole bunch of stuff, and it's all over there in the future. Preterist. And it's, it's a, the preterism has had a revival in the last 50 years. Preterism means all the prophecies, and I'm simplifying, but all the prophecies in the Bible were all fulfilled before 70 A.D. All of them. Jesus came the second time before 70 A.D. The resurrection of the dead occurred before 70 A.D. The bodies were raised from the graves before 70 A.D. Every word in the book of Revelation was before 70 A.D. Who's the man of sin sitting on the throne in 2 Thessalonians 2? Nero Caesar. That's preterism. Everything was fulfilled in 70 A.D. Brethren, we have two ditches. And if we do not guard our steps and go through the tedious work that it takes to learn how the Bible is to be used, we're going to go into one of them. Or we're going to creep toward that side. Do you know where I want to be? I want to be on the yellow line at the crest of the road. And so we have to go slowly and carefully or we're going to be there. The whole world wants to push us to one of those two extremes. The religious world. I hate preterism. You have got to meet a preterist and talk to them. They have some light on some verses that the futurists don't have. And when you hear a preterist for the first time explain verses that a futurist is jammed out in the future, you think this man knows his Bible because it is wonderful. It is a breath of fresh air. But you keep listening to him, and do you know what is left in the New Testament for you? Nothing. Do you know what the best question to ask a preterist is? What hope is there for me? He doesn't have any. He has worked his whole life to take the whole Bible and jam it back into 70 A.D. I'll tell you one thing about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's full of hope. Amen. 
there is a hope of the believer that we're to comfort one another with each day of our lives. And there ain't a whole lot of comfort in 70 A.D. What's in 70 A.D. is to lift up the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where I'm trying to go between these two extremes. And the world is pushing us. The religious world wants to push us in one of two extremes. One ditch is the Left Behind series that wants to get us over there. Then if you read any conservative literature today, it's the preterism that wants to get you over here and throw everything into 70 A.D. Well, that's not Bible study. I can easily go through the whole Bible and make everything one or the other. Do you know what real Bible study is? It's taking two things that sound alike, and instead of making them the same thing, either the future or the past, pulling them apart by studying God's Word and saying, this is literal, this is figurative. You say, that sounds like dangerous and hard work. Second Timothy 2.15, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Because as far as we understand, the futurists ought to be ashamed and the preterists ought to be ashamed. They're both taking the easy way out instead of trying to go down the road of righteousness and the highway of holiness and finding the truth of God in the center between those two extremes. And so I'm teaching you right now that sometimes when God says He comes, and when sometimes when God says He comes on a cloud, and sometimes when He says it's the day of the Lord, and sometimes when He says that He's going to stop the sun from shining and the moon from shining, He doesn't mean those things literally. It is the language of a prophet. Sometimes. Let me help you. When the, when the apostles were standing in Acts chapter 1, and Jesus ascended up into heaven, what did He ascend up into? A cloud. Was that figurative? Was He still standing there really with them, and He continued with them, or did He ascend up into a literal cloud? He ascended up into a literal cloud because they raised their eyes, and the description is not prophetic, it is historical, and the disciples are looking up as He disappears into a cloud, Two men appear that are angels, and they say, Ye men of Galilee, why are you gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus that you have seen go into heaven will come in like manner, and that is exactly what we believe. But there are other times when God comes in clouds where it's figurative because He's coming in judgment. I am nothing. And I am thankful that all of you know that I'm nothing. Because I am nothing. But this is how we're going to study the Bible in this church. And it's a whole lot harder than grabbing this one, or grabbing this one, and just going right into that ditch and running with the rest of the boys. And I want you to do that with me. And it takes more work, it takes longer sermons, it takes tedious sermons, and it takes going through stuff like this to show you how prophets spoke. I don't have an agenda. I don't have an agenda at all. I'll admit that I'm wrong on any verse in the Bible if it can be shown to me. But we're going to stand in the truth as far as God will show it to us. And we've got to rightly divide it and say, this is literal, this is figurative, and why? Why we make that judgment. Isaiah 19.1, I wish you'd remember that verse, because there's God coming on a swift cloud into Egypt, and they were moved at His presence, though it was a figurative coming of judgment. How about the day of the Lord? Let's go back to Isaiah 13, since it's close at hand. Isaiah 13, it's what I read to you this morning. Look at the first four words of the chapter. What is it? 
the burden of Babylon. Remember, it's the Medes and the Persians destroying Babylon in 500 B.C. But look in verse 6. It says, How ye, for the day of the Lord is at hand. There have been many days of the Lord. Many. This is a day of the Lord that fell upon Babylon. It shall come as a destruction from the Almighty. Now, if you think that every time the words day of the Lord appear in the Bible, it's the second coming, you're going to be in error when you read Isaiah 13. Because this is a day of the Lord that is entirely unrelated to the second coming. It only affected a small part of the earth. It was the overthrow of the city of Babylon. Verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Did all the sinners disappear from the land of Babylon or from the land of the Chaldeans in Isaiah 13? No. But he sure did get rid of the Babylonians and their position of influence and power in the earth. It's the strong language of a prophet that we've got to bring back and look for the reality of what he's actually describing. And what he's describing is the city of Babylon being overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. And see, I love Isaiah 13 and I want you to love it. Because it's one of those chapters where you're told at the beginning and at the end exactly what's under consideration. Fulfilled prophecy and learning how it was fulfilled is the way to look at prophecy that you're not sure how it was fulfilled. The value of prophecy is its fulfillment. Just hearing about what's coming doesn't have a whole lot of value in most prophecies. Now, knowing that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming for us is the blessed hope of the believer. And we're to comfort one another with those words. But when we look back in the Old Testament, we look in the first part of the New Testament, and we see these prophecies that are coming, we want to find their fulfillment because it builds our faith. I can tell you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that when I'm reading some of these historical fulfillments, and I read a pagan that is describing what happened at a certain date, and I know it's in the Bible. When I read it, I hit my desk and I say, Thank you, Lord! Lord, this is precious! That you were able to prophesy this so early in advance. The whole world has a book that described the development of the four empires of the world in advance. The world knows that Daniel was written early B.C., and it described Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, then the Roman Empire, then the decay of the Roman Empire, and then a little horn coming up out of that Roman Empire that took the Roman Empire's name in the Roman Catholic Church. I have world history written by Daniel from 500 B.C. to the end of this age. And I do get excited because that's what prophecy's for. I tell you things before they come to pass. Is what God said. The value of prophecy is its fulfillment. That's why Jesus said, and these are words from this morning, I tell you before it come to pass, so that when it comes to pass, you'll believe that I am He. You will know that I'm the God of the Old Testament, the Jehovah God, because I'm going to tell things before they come to pass. And when they come to pass exactly as I've told them, you'll know that I am He. And that is why the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus Christ was king and what he was going to do to his enemies was preached in all the world for a witness. And then the end of the Jewish nation and the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary came just as Jesus had prophesied. There's, there are many Bible prophecies fulfilled within the Bible. 
Abraham, you're going to have a son. And, you know, we read a couple more chapters, and Abraham has a son. He even told us the son's mother was going to be. We see the angel telling Joseph about Mary's son. We see the angel telling Mary about her son. We see lots of prophecies fulfilled in the Bible, but there are a lot of other prophecies that are not fulfilled in the Bible. What do you do with those prophecies? Do you just say, well, I like the sound of those words, and I believe they all happened? But that's not very confirming to your faith. I love to find out how they were fulfilled because it fulfills, it fulfills Scripture because those prophecies were given for a reason for you to rejoice in the God of heaven that was able to tell things before they happened. Much of Daniel's prophecies were that way because Daniel gave them in 500 B.C., 450, 450 B.C. to cover up to the destruction of Jerusalem. Because we have 400 years of silence in the Bible. Did Israel exist from 400 B.C. to the time of Christ? Not a word in the Bible about it except the last four chapters of Daniel. That's all we know about it. But there are historical records of what happened back there. And what we do is we go to the Bible first and we say, this is true. And if the historical records ever disagree, they're wrong. That is, that is what I have believed. And that's why I said some strong words last Sunday about hating men that tie the beginning of the 70 weeks to anyone but Cyrus the Persian. Because Cyrus the Persian was God's chosen and named man a hundred years before he was born. And we are in a very small minority to trust the word of God on that. Do you know what they all say? It cannot be Cyrus the Persian because he wrote in 538 B.C. Cyrus reigned in 538 B.C. He cannot be the one that got the 70 weeks going because 490 years from 538 wouldn't even get us to Jesus Christ. Are you with me? They say Cyrus reigned in 538. 490 wouldn't get you to Jesus Christ. I've read hundreds and hundreds of pages this week, and they nauseate me. Second thing they say, I've got a document that's about to hit our website on this subject. Second thing they say, Cyrus never ordered the city to be rebuilt. All he did was order the temple to be rebuilt. And go to Daniel 9, because that's where we're going next. Daniel chapter 9, for a few more minutes. Daniel 9, I want to tell you where we stand and how we approach men and their writings. We only trust the Word of God. But once trusting the Word of God to find history backing up exactly what God said would happen is wonderful. We do this rather often and you just don't realize it. When you go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and I've already done that tonight, we had a prophecy. Men were going to depart from the faith and start teaching that you should abstain from meats and that you shouldn't marry. Now, if you didn't know anything about Catholicism, you would read those six verses and they wouldn't mean a thing to you. But because you know about Catholicism, which is something outside the Word of God, you're able to fulfill that prophecy of 1 Timothy 4 and say, that is marvelous. God is marvelous to tell Paul, to tell Timothy, back in 50 or 60 A.D., that there was going to arise a Christian denomination that was going to forbid marriage, the vows of celibacy, and that was going to fast, and fasting to them was not eating meat. 
Isn't that the same thing we do when we see the vain repetitions of the heathen in their prayers? Isn't that the same thing we see when the, Jesus addressed the first Marialiter? And we see those little indications in the Bible of danger that's coming, but we understand it because we've seen Catholicism and we see the prophecies of it in the Bible. Daniel chapter 9, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. Remember this passage? This is one of the greatest prophetic passages in the Bible, one of the most important. Everyone knows that, that it's very important because it's dated, it gives a starting point, it gives an ending point in the middle of the 70th week, and it's all about the Messiah, and it's about the destruction of Jerusalem. But notice verse 25, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and six and threescore and two weeks. So it tells us what the beginning event is. And the beginning event is some king giving an order, a commandment, to restore and build the city of Jerusalem. Can you hold your hand there at Daniel 9 and flip back to Ezra chapter 1? Ezra chapter 1. They have four options. Two with Artaxerxes, one with Darius, and one with Cyrus. They admit the other three might be possible, and they say that Cyrus is absolutely impossible. For two reasons. He won't fit their chronology because they have him reigning in 538 B.C. And two, they say Cyrus never did anything about building the city because Daniel 9.25 says it's from the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem. Ezra 1, verse 1. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom. Put it in writing. Verse 2, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem. What's that? That's a commandment, a proclamation to build the temple. He's commanded me to build him a house. So here we've got Cyrus. Now look back at the last two verses of Second Chronicles. Same thing. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And it says, God has charged me to build him a house. And so you say, those guys might have a point. I think those guys might have a point by saying it can't be Cyrus. Isaiah 45. Keeping your hand at Daniel 9, because we're going there. Look at Isaiah 45. I trust the Bible. And if all men disagree with the Bible, I'm going to disagree with all men. And I hope that you're willing to do that. I want you to know that Isaiah was written 100 years before Cyrus was born. I want you to know that Daniel took the book of Isaiah into Cyrus the Persian and let him read it and see his own name in writing that was written 100 years before he was born. Verse 28. Here's what God said of Cyrus. God, Isaiah 44, 28. Isaiah 44, 28. That saith of Cyrus, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built. Now is that a commandment to restore and to build the, the city of Jerusalem? There it is. We believe the Bible. We don't care how scholarly, how educated, how many degrees, and how many of them there are. 
We believe the Bible and what it says. Let's back up to verse 26. That confirmeth the word of his servant and performeth the counsel of his messengers that saith to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah ye shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. When you are raising up the decayed places of something, can that be called a restoration? And when you are building these cities, that's what Cyrus did. How about chapter 45? Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, and he goes on to describe and he talks all about what he did with Cyrus. And look at verse 13. I have raised him up in righteousness, and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city. He shall build my city, and he shall let go my captives, not for price nor reward, saith the Lord of hosts, but because the God of heaven has charged me to build him a house and to build his city. And he tells all the Jews in Babylon, all of you that are willing to go back, go. I'll help pay for it. This is Cyrus. But I want to tell you something. All the learned men, except a very, very few, all believe that Cyrus is impossible because the chronologies they use and are probably at the top of the page of your Bible, if you have dates in your Bible... If you go back to Daniel, you will find that it's 538 B.C. And 538 is too many years for 490 to get us to Jesus Christ. Because we have the 70 weeks in Daniel chapter 9. I hope I've made that simple enough for you to see. They give two reasons why it can't be Cyrus. I defy them with the Word of God. Amen. Do you know what I say about their chronology? It's wrong. It's wrong by 82 years, at least. In order to get the decree of Cyrus to be in 456 B.C., so that we have it prophesying the baptism of Jesus in 26 A.D., which is 482 or 3 years, which is the 69 weeks. Daniel chapter 9. We went over this last week. But I want you to know this. Do you know what, do you know where to find the prophecy of the 70 weeks? Do you know it's only four verses long? Here's what the angel told Daniel. Verse 24, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. Your nation, your city only has 490 years left. They're determined upon it to finish the transgression. They're going to commit the wor- all the sins and the worst sin in order to fill up their transgressions and to finish them. There's going to be an end made of sins. Reconciliation for iniquity is going to be made. Everlasting righteousness will be brought in. We're going to seal up the vision and prophecy, and the Most Holy will be anointed. Those six things will happen, Daniel. Know therefore and understand. This is a simple prophecy that you can know and understand. That from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem, which is the commandment by Cyrus the Persian, Unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. That's 69 weeks in total. That's 483 years. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublous times. Verse 26. And after three score and two weeks, I went over this last Sunday. After 483 years, we're in 26 AD. The baptism of Jesus Christ. After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off. If he is cut off after 483 years or after 69 weeks, then he must be cut off 
in the 70th week. But not for Himself. And isn't that what we know about our Lord Jesus Christ? He died not for Himself, but for us. In conjunction with that, because it's going to be Daniel's people that kill him, the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. God's going to send His armies and destroy those murderers and burn up their city. The parable in Matthew 22. And the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war desolations are determined. God has determined to desolate the city and the sanctuary of His people for crucifying His Son. And we were told this, and we were given a dated prophecy with a beginning and with an end, and with an event coming in conjunction with it. That's Daniel 9. Then verse 27. And He, and it's the Messiah that is the subject of verse 26, And He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week He shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. We went through this. He said, it is finished. He ended the sacrificial system by being the sacrifice Himself. He confirmed the covenant with many for a week by preaching the gospel of the New Testament. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. That was confirming the covenant, the new covenant with many for a week. Three and a half years Himself, three and a half years with His apostles. And the 70th week was ended. The important event of the 70th week was Jesus being cut off in the midst of the week. Verse 26 told us He was cut off, not for Himself, but for us. Verse 27 tells us when? In the midst of the week, which means after three and a half years. And and for the overspreading of abominations, for the wickedness of Israel, He shall make it desolate. City and sanctuary, already listed here. Even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. I hear the words of Jesus. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. He would consume it and wipe out the city and the sanctuary because of the wickedness of the abominations of the Jewish people in crucifying Jewish nation, in crucifying His Son, the Lord of glory. This is Daniel 9, just four verses long. This is the prophecy of 70 weeks. All the futurists believe that the 70th week is still yet to come. There were 69 weeks, and then God's timetable stopped, and the 70th week is in the future. Jesus is going to come back in a secret rapture and take all the believers to heaven. All the unbelievers are still going to be on earth. An antichrist is going to come up, the he of verse 27. He's going to confirm a covenant with many for a week. He's going to make a covenant with the world, He's going to reestablish the city of Jerusalem, build a temple there, give the Jews the right to offer animal sacrifices, and on and on and on they go. It's all in their imagination. There's not a word to support it. And it violates a prophecy that's been given a specific time frame. It just clicks by week after week after week till you get to 70 weeks. They stick it way out in the future. There is no such thing as a three and a half year tribulation in the Bible in the way that they understand it at all. First of all, Jesus Christ does not come before the Antichrist. The Antichrist comes before Jesus Christ because 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 tells us that, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day of Christ's second coming shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed. And Paul said, Don't let any man deceive you on that. The Antichrist comes first, but that's another subject for another time. 
And that is part of the proof why we're not preterists. Because Paul said the second coming of Jesus Christ was not at hand. There was still a lot of things that would run prophetically. That is Daniel 9. Four verses where God tells Daniel, Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city. A prince is going to come with armies and destroy the city and the sanctuary in conjunction with Messiah having been crucified. Jesus told us in Luke 19 why he was going to level the city of Jerusalem. Because you knew not the day of your visitation. When Jesus visited the city of Jerusalem and they didn't know he was the Son of God, that's why he said he was going to level it. And here we have a description of this in 500 B.C. to Daniel. Then, four years later, the... One more prophecy is given to Daniel and it covers the last three chapters. And we've been over these verse by verse. I just want to remind you about something. Everything that we can read in Daniel 10, 11, and 12 is within a time frame. Because the time frame is given to us in the prophecy. I'm going to give you four verses right now to tell you and show you that Daniel 10, 11, and 12 all has to happen before 70 A.D. 10, 11, and 12. This prophecy comes four years later. You can tell from the first verse of each chapter, because Daniel tells you when he got the prophecy. The first verse is Daniel 10.14. Daniel 10.14. Here's the angel speaking to Daniel. This is one vision, chapters 10, 11, and 12. Now I am come to make thee understand... What shall befall thy people in the latter days? For yet the vision is for many days. Daniel's being told this in 450 B.C., and it's going to run all the way to 70 A.D., and it's about Daniel's people. It's about no other people. It's not about Gentiles, and it's certainly not about the United States of America. It's about Daniel's people. You can see that in that verse. I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thy people in the latter days. They're going to go back to Babylon because Cyrus is going to send them, take them back there. But here's what's going to happen. That's 10.14. Look at 11.14. In the middle of the kings of the north and the south. And in those times there shall many stand up against the king of the south. Also the robbers of thy people shall exalt themselves to establish the vision, but they shall fall. There again is a reference to Daniel's people. This is a Jewish prophecy about the Jewish people. Chapter 12 and verse 1. All of this is on our website. Under Bible Topics, click on Prophecy, click on Daniel. And you can read a very lengthy outline with many cross-references showing these point, showing the stuff that we went over three years ago. Daniel 12.1 And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince, which standeth for the children of thy people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. Does that language sound familiar? There would be great tribulation like the world had never seen. And at that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. In Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, are we told that God will shorten the days so that the elect can be saved? Yes, we are. Here it is in Daniel 12. Now look at Daniel 12, 7. 
And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half, and when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. That verse is of great importance. That verse right there puts an end point on all that's in Daniel 10, 11, and 12. It's when the holy people, the nation of Israel, have been scattered. When was the nation of Israel scattered? In 70 AD. Jesus said the Gentiles are going to be trotting down the city of Jerusalem for the rest of this age, for the rest of this time. There are, there are our verses. We started in 1014. I'm going to show you what's going to happen to your people in the latter days. Then we get to 12.7, and this angel thinks that it's very important to swear by him that liveth forever and ever, that when the power of the holy people have been scattered, all this prophecy is fulfilled. I like a prophecy when I have a starting point and ending point, and I know who's being talked about in between. Then when you go and start looking at the prophecy in chapter 11, chapter 10 is all introductory material. The angels are telling Daniel, We've had to fight with the we've had to fight with the prince of Persia, meaning devils, devils that motivate kingdoms of this world, and we're going to have to fight with the prince of Grecia as well because he's coming next. But then the prophecy takes up in chapter eleven, and it says in verse two, "Behold, Daniel, there shall stand up yet three kings in Persia, and the fourth shall be far richer than they all." That's Xerxes. Anybody who's ever read anything about history knows that there was a very rich Persian king. And these are Persian kings. We're talking about, we're talking about 400, 420 BC after the Persians overthrew the Babylonian Empire. Then the Persians reigned. The Babylonians were gone. Now it's time for Persia. Then it's time for Grecia. Then it's time for Rome. And if you follow through Daniel chapter 11, he takes you through the kings of Persia, then he takes you through the kings of Grecia, and then he takes you through the divided kings of Grecia, where we had the kings of the north against the kings of the south, Syria against Egypt, and who was in the middle? Israel, the Jews. That's why we're given this prophecy, because it's what's going to affect Daniel's people in the latter days after they came back from their captivity in Babylon. See, God doesn't care about the rest of the world as much as he did his church of the Jewish nation. You know, the Cheyenne, the Cherokee were having their own little battles on the North American continent, but there's not a verse about it. The Japanese and the Chinese may have been fighting, but there's not a verse about it because it didn't affect his people. But we've got Daniel 11, and I'll tell you something. You go ahead and read through Daniel 11. Just take a straight read through it. All the way through Daniel 11 about the king of the north against the king of the south. But, and it's, you'll be lost. But if you put a starting point on it with Daniel writing about the latter days and starting out with a Persian king and you put an end point on it of when the, the people of Israel will be scattered and you know that it's all about Israel and you follow through, it's all understandable as we studied on Wednesday nights three years ago. Do you remember? Right. It's beautiful. Amen. It's absolutely beautiful. And then it gets us to chapter 12 where the Romans are now in power. Because Augustus is in the last part of chapter 11, and it was in the days of Caesar Augustus that a decree went out for all the world to be taxed when the Lord Jesus Christ was born. 
And we read in chapter 1 that Michael's going to stand up and there's going to be a time of trouble, the likes of which the world has never seen, which is the Great Tribulation. And then an angel swears by him that liveth forever and ever that the holy people are going to be scattered. And they were scattered in 70 A.D. And all this happens before that. Then we have this in the last two verses. Look at verse 11. And from the time... And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, and the abomination that maketh desolate set up, there shall be a thousand two hundred and ninety days. There's going to be one thousand two hundred and ninety days between two important events. When the daily sacrifice stops being offered in Jerusalem, because the Romans will have made it too difficult to have any more lambs for the daily sacrifice. Now, what is the abomination of desolation? When you read Matthew chapter 24 and verse 15, it says, Jesus spoke to those people listening to him, when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the holy place, then run for the hills of Judea. And if you're in the country, don't come into the city because the desolation thereof is nigh. That's Matthew. Same thing in Mark. It says, when you see the abomination of desolation set up in the holy place, then you know that it's time to flee the city of Jerusalem. Now, Luke does not say it that way at all. He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. So now we know what the abomination of desolation is, don't we? The abomination of desolation is surrounding armies. And we know what those armies were. They were the Roman armies in 66 A.D. when they came with Cestius Gallus and surrounded the city. Why are they called the abomination of desolation? Because a foreign nation that were a bunch of idol worshippers planting their ensigns and their gods on Jewish soil was an abominable thing. Why are they called the abomination of desolation? Because they were going to make Jerusalem desolate. As we've just read about five times in Daniel chapter 9, and we're reading right here. Now, when was the abomination of desolation set up? When did the armies surround Jerusalem? Three and a half years before 70 A.D. 1,290 days. You can back into it in a calendar. Now listen. When Jesus said in Matthew and Mark, when He said, when the abomination of desolation is set up as written by Daniel, let him that readeth understand. This is the, this is the verse. This is the abomination of desolation. Because they're told how long it's going to be. 1,290 days from when Cestius first came, then left. They had a couple years when they could have got moved out of that city. Then the city was in such hardship, they could no longer offer the daily sacrifice. The daily sacrifice ended. They could no longer offer that lamb. That was 1,290 days. And what did Jesus say in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21? He said, if I don't shorten those days, the elect won't even survive them. And notice what Daniel says, the very same thing. Here's how he words it. He says in verse 12, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the thousand three hundred and five and thirty days. The man, those that can wait forty-five more days, the city will be over and the hostilities will have ended and those that have hid in the mountains of Judea will be safe. The very same thing Jesus said. The sacrifice could no longer be given, but the city was still in strong hands, and it was an impregnable city of Jerusalem, and the forts that were built around the temple. 
and they vacated those forts. And the time was shortened that Titus took to take the city holy so that the people that were hiding could come back out because he granted total amnesty to anyone that would come out and lay down arms. And so the elect were all saved. It was prophesied in Daniel chapter 12, and Jesus said in Matthew 24 and Mark 13, Let him that readeth what Daniel wrote understand. I will shorten that siege of Jerusalem, which is called the time of trouble. It's the worst thing that's going to happen to the nation because it's going to be the scattering of the holy people. I'm through with them. I was through with the ten tribes under the kings of Assyria in 700 B.C. I'm now through with the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. The holy people will be scattered and Jerusalem is going to be trodden down of Gentiles. And that is the prophecy of the Word of God. That is Daniel. Four-verse summary in Daniel chapter 9, then a three-verse exposition of a 400-year prophecy in Daniel chapters 10, 11, and 12 as it describes all the successive wars culminating with the Romans taking over at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ and including the setting up of the abomination of desolation. There it is. Jesus said, go back and read about it. And Jesus brought all that on that generation, just what Daniel had described. He is a great king. They cut off the Messiah. Whatever parable that you like the most, Matthew 21, Matthew 22, Luke 17, whatever parable you like the most, when the Lord Jesus Christ came to that nation and looking from that vineyard for his fruits, and they, they persecuted him and then they killed him, the Lord of that vineyard was going to miserably destroy those wicked men in one prophecy. He was going to send his armies and destroy those murderers and burn up their cities in another parable. All on that generation. What we'll be doing next Sunday is starting to march through Malachi 3, Malachi 4, Matthew 3, Matthew 16, Matthew 21, Matthew 22, Matthew 23, on our way to see the prophecies over and over and over, fulfilling what we just read that Daniel told us. And Jesus said, Daniel's written about it. Let him that readeth understand. I will shorten those days to save the elect. Because if they weren't shortened, even the elect wouldn't survive. And it says, Blessed is he that waiteth. He that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. The Bible is not that complicated on this subject. But we, there are some verses that are tricky. And we don't, we don't want to take a second coming verse and make it a 70 A.D. verse. And we don't want to take a 70 A.D. verse and make it a second coming verse. We want to try to rightly divide the word of truth. Daniel's people have been scattered for 1,935 years. Everyone knows that. The holy people were scattered in 70 A.D., and this was a prophecy that took us right to that date. The Lord Jesus Christ laid it out in advance, and he told his people so that they could all be saved from it. And as far as tradition tells us, which you know what I think of that, not a single Christian died in Jerusalem. And why would we think that a Christian died in Jerusalem? They should have all left. Because they had men like Peter telling them, save yourselves from this untoward generation. What is an untoward man? One that is entirely unreasonable and crucified the Lord of glory. They persecuted the prophets, the apostles, and Jesus, the Son of God. I don't like ending right here, but that's where we're going to end. And may the Lord bless you to continue to study these things, I hope, 
that I might be able to get an outline out in the next day or two in which you can look at a number of things of where we're going. Not just where we've been, but where we're going so that when we come together, we can go quickly. Amen. May the Lord Jesus Christ bless the preaching of His Word.